Hello, and welcome to the special edition of the Management Matters podcast. I'm Caitlin Bloom, Director of Fellow Engagement at the National Academy of Public Administration. This week, we are releasing a special series in celebration of Public Service Recognition Week, where we will be speaking with fellows of the Academy that represent different levels of government, the nonprofit sector, and academia. We are excited to hear about their journey to public service, their lessons learned and best practices, and their advice for future leaders. On this episode, I'm speaking with Ama Felix, President and CEO of Collegiate Directions and an Academy Fellow. Ama, thank you for joining and welcome. Good morning. Thank you for having me. So as I mentioned, it's Public Service Recognition Week. So I would like to know more about your career. You've predominantly been at the intersection of government and the nonprofit sector. What has your journey been like? That's a great question. Sort of thinking back. I I think I started off with a sense of curiosity about what motivates people. That sort of led me to an undergraduate major in psychology, and I think it started all from there. Um, I was very active on campus in student organizations and um, diversity matters. And then I think I, at that point when I started off, I really thought I wanted to be a university professor and do research, et cetera. And then um, I started my academic journey from there. And then I realized at some point, no, I really want to be on the ground. So I got my first job at a nonprofit in New York City. So I started off in nonprofit and I've been in nonprofit ever since. And really the mission of organizations and really helping people was a great motivator for that. And tell us a little bit about the organization you are at now and what the best part of your job is. So I work at Collegiate Directions. It's a a nonprofit that helps um, young people, high school students, access and complete college. And we also have a component that works with high school leaders in the counseling office to help them build college offices and help their leadership in the school really move forward on policies and practices that help students get into college and creating a college-going culture in their school. On the scholars' side, we really provide wraparound supports. So for example, for a year's time, we provide them with tutoring to help them take standardized tests, which then helps them get access to a greater pool of schools. Having access to this greater pool of schools gives them access to schools that have deeper support to help them as first-generation students who come from low-income backgrounds, either with financial aid or support services. Then we also provide mental health and wellness, which given all of the last few years with the pandemic has really been just such a strong aspect of our work and has grown significantly. And then we also are a recent component of our program is we help connect our scholars one-on-one with mentors in their chosen field. So we have a career mentoring initiative. And I would say the best part of my work is really helping to give access and opportunity. Our tagline is um, achieving what's possible. And for me, thinking about when we're working with the families of our scholars and when they first start off, they don't know what the options are. They don't know what the opportunities are and working with them to sort of build goals and to build a college list, for example, and to help them access financial aid and to persist with them until they complete college. Um, is very rewarding. We Our college graduation rate is 97%, which compared to the national rate for um, students with similar backgrounds, about 16%. So we feel like, you know, we have a really strong program that achieves great results and outcomes 
with the families and the scholars that we've been serving since 2005. That's amazing. How does your work intersect with government? In our work today, we partner with the county. We have some county resources to help us um, execute our work. And also, you know, we are in a coalition with other nonprofits to help elected officials really understand the unique challenges and experiences that our scholars and similar scholars across the state of Maryland face. This coalition works to educate uh, elected officials so that they can appropriate and authorize resources to better support students, not just in our program, but students who have a similar background in other programs across the state. And I would say in 2022, we spent a fair amount of time already, even though it's only the fourth month in doing that. So we're really proud to work in partnership with different government entities. So you've been in the education space for a while. How have you seen the field evolve? Um, I think I would say first, I would answer this question about the evolution of the space. Before I go to the education field, I just want to say a point about the nonprofit sector itself. Since I started, you know, almost 25 years ago in this space, I would say the perception that nonprofit is a sort of warm and fuzzy, um, very anecdotally based um, space that, you know, has a lot of quote unquote do-gooders who are just driven by heart is, you know, again, just a myth. I think there is a greater appreciation for that since, you know, the time that I have come up in the sector, there's been some significant challenges, both man-made, you know, terrorist actions, as well as environmental, um, you know, uh, things that have engaged other sectors to really understand what it takes to operate a nonprofit. So when I was in New York City, um, I was there working on a nonprofit during 9-11. And I think the sort of awakening of people in other sectors about what it actually takes to deliver services to people on the ground really sort of blossomed, you know, in the specter of that um, horrific uh, tragedy. I think there was a greater understanding and appreciation for what it dollar wise, staff wise, infrastructure wise, what it takes to deliver services on the ground. And I think another sort of thing about the field is that, you know, when I first, one of my first jobs uh, was working at a nonprofit in New York City, and we were getting um, city contracts from the city of New York. And at that time, they were just rolling out performance-based contracts. And so I re- literally remember the day when we got word and people were sort of trying to figure out, well, what does that mean? And what is an outcome? What is an output? And how are we going to track what we're doing? And I think today, right, we're much more professionalized around that. So I've seen the evolution in the field around that. Another sort of piece, um, as I mentioned about infrastructure and understanding, I think donors better understand the role of nonprofits in actually, in some places, in some cities and counties across the country, the nonprofits are providing the services um, instead of local government. So there is stronger, more deeper understanding about what it takes. And, And on the what it takes aspect, I think for a long time, there's been a sort of negative stigma associated with what was called overhead or what others call management in general. And I think there's a deeper appreciation for the value of making sure that the organization is strong. It has the right infrastructure. It has management. I think people like to flock to support programs without realizing that you need a manager to make sure you get to results. You need technology to track what you're doing and be able to report back. And and I think sometimes 
nonprofits are reluctant to really um, articulate those needs. And so I think that there's more of a movement today, an evolution that that's important and there's value placed on that. And I think this, this notion of restricted versus unrestricted or general operating support, I think has been a struggle that many nonprofits, particularly small ones, are challenged with because as I mentioned, there's a need for more flexibility around resources to be able to do the things, not just to deliver the program, but the key enablers need that need support in order to deliver the programs. For example, staff development, right? It's a real need um, and often unfunded. um, And that's where your general operating support can be helpful. And I think having uh, donors understand the value and significance of that is important that you can't just have people deliver service, deliver service without themselves getting the latest trends, getting access to experts, collaborating with one another and how to do that in a smart way. So I think um, the nonprofit sector itself has evolved. I would say in my space in education, which is spans both K through 12 as well as as, um, higher ed, I think the emergence of this idea of virtual learning and learning loss that has many of our scholars Um, have um, experience. I think there's an evolving data set around that and what it means to communities, um, the value of in-person learning and in-person teaching versus online. I know many of our scholars have been challenged with that and uh, talking to officials at our local school district, they've also articulated that um, students are coming in now because of this last two years, really at a uh, behind and needing of deeper supports to be able to shore up sort of the gaps because virtual learning really put put students in situations where they did not have the space um, often to um, learn freely and clear and have clear instruction uh, in a way that sort of serves their individual needs, which often you can get a stronger sense of with in-person um, learning. And I think particularly in the field of higher ed, there have been significant changes around financial aid, which is still sort of unfolding. Um, The financial aid um, process itself is being changed by the federal government. And so we're, as practitioners, sort of learning about what those changes mean and how things are different. I think uh, also admissions policies have changed now that there's been the last couple of years of virtual where you couldn't meet and get access to these standardized tests. So many schools have gone test optional we're still learning um, a lot of data is not yet available about test optional, what impact that has. And it's not just on a higher level, but also to disaggregate by race, gender, um, special needs, English language learning. So there's a lot to unpack. And I think right now in the field, there's so many new and emerging things that are coming out. Um, I find it to be an exciting time to really, you know, dive in and really understand what's going on. And, and then also, you know, keep pace with that to be able to serve the needs. So from your perspective, why are we not seeing more students interested in careers in government? And what can we do about that? I think careers in government and sort of public service are kind of, in some ways, largely misunderstood. So if you don't have exposure to folks who are doing the variety of of, uh, fields and jobs in that, Um, And all you know is sort of name brand companies, basically from marketing and advertising, um, you know, that does have an impact if you don't have exposure 
I think being in this DMV area, I would say that our scholars, for example, still, even though, right, DM, the, in this area, there's a government and nonprofit sector is probably strongest at, um, versus other parts of the country. Um, but I still think um, access to folks who are doing this work, which is why sort of a mentor helps to give you the breadth of options and, and talk you through that, have strategic conversations with young people about what their options really are. And I think depending on the population you're talking to, for example, if you're um, working with scholars who have economically challenged backgrounds, I think a core and key motivator, one is to help people for sure. So you would think that, right, the work that um, we do in the public sector would be a top choice, but then you have to factor in exposure. So maybe they just don't know. But then the other thing is perceptions about pay. And I think there's not... um, and some of it is not just perception, right? That there's been recent studies and works about, for example, unpaid internships with elected officials in the White House and in Congress. And I think they've done more to have paid internships. But in fact, I was just reading something that said um, the, the paid internships are still largely going to white candidates with, you know, middle to upper class backgrounds that otherwise would have the opportunity to spend um, and, and afford to spend time in D.C. or with their elected official unpaid. So it's not really reaching the audience that are Black, Latino, um, Asian students or economically challenged or students who have economically challenged backgrounds. It's not really reaching those, these, these internships. Um, and they mostly come from elite institutions as well. So you're sort of recycling sort of the same population. Um, and I think exposure and um Awareness is a big thing that I think the public sector doesn't have, right? You don't see commercials on TV about um, working at any of the government agencies and how that might be uh, a field for you. So I think, and and certainly not in the nonprofit sector either. So I think there's more that we can do around awareness and outreach um, to let them know that these fields do exist. And, you know, there's so many (laughs) fields out there, so many opportunities. But I think, unfortunately, name brand and and branding is an area that I think our sector is not very strong in and could do much more around. I completely agree. Exposure is is critical. What advice would you give future leaders if they wanted a career in the nonprofit or public sector? I thought about this and uh, thinking back to what are some of the things that I thought would be helpful to me as I entered into this um, arena One, I would say get some analytical skills. You know, there's MPAs out there. I would say get some analytical skills. Reason being is that you can make a strong case for support. I think that's a core part of what you're trying to do in this sector is really engage the public into why your work is necessary, how this is important and how it's going to affect and impact people. I would say stay current in your field. That's so important. You have to be fluid in the data, the trends. Um, not only one, to strengthen your internal management, but also to be an ambassador about why your work is important and why your cause is significant. Three, I would say be guided by your mission, not by dollars. And I think for many, uh, speaking of nonprofits as an example, sometimes depending on your relationship with donors and and your drive to want to attract additional resources, Sometimes there might be an opportunity for dollars that maybe is maybe a little bit outside of your mission. And I would say use your mission as your North Star to be strategic about saying no. 
I think saying yes can get you in hot water if it's not in alignment with your strategic priorities, with your mission. It not only stretches your um, desire to achieve results, but it also stretches your team. And so I think thinking about your mission first and then making sure everything aligns to that. I think also it makes your case stronger when you're able to ground it in mission and what you're trying to do. Otherwise, I think you try to contort yourself to something that you're not, and then the results are not going to be as strong as you want them to be. So that's why mission first is important. I would say four, to invest in your team, right? Without your team, you can't achieve your mission. And in this sector, it's often difficult to find resources to be able to do that. But I think, you know, whatever you can do to make that a priority, and sometimes you can do so being creative, you don't have the dollars to send them to all the conferences. Maybe you can find dollars to have experts come to your space and talk to your team about what the latest things are, you know, something as as small as that, but it's significant when um, it goes to well-being, it goes to staff retention, which, you know, today um, is core and difficult. I mean, it's much more difficult to go out and recruit a new person than it is to keep and retain a strong staff who have the institutional knowledge to keep your mission alive and to drive you to results. I would say five, be still and practice self-care. I think that's something that we overlook. I think, you know, um, a burned out leader is not a good leader. There's tons of decisions that we need to make on a daily basis. And um, as a person in leadership, I know that it's important to stay recharged, um, you know, stay connected to your constituents um, and really understand and learn from them, but also be still. And sometimes that is, you know, taking your vacation time or, going away or taking a day off, or it could mean, you know, maybe you're not taking meetings all the time, all the back to back to backs. Maybe you have days of the week where you're blocking your time off, whatever that looks like for you. It's important to have that time where you can think about who you are, what you're trying to achieve, which is important to try to stay current and fresh and and all of those other things. And I would say the lastly, to continue to use your voice as an advocate. I think sometimes, depending on where we are, if either we're head down, so buried in our work, we don't sort of think about things from a higher level or a systemic level, or we are burned out, right? And we've been, we are thinking about things systemically, but we're so burned out. And that might maybe lead us to um, be complacent in some ways. But I would say um, over the last couple of years, we have seen things changing quite rapidly. And I would say in whatever sector you're in, There are new things to advocate around for your constituents. There are new practices and policies that should be in place that you could be a cheerleader, a champion for, an ambassador for, and bring folks in as as partners. You shouldn't be doing it alone. Partnerships are important, um, smart and strategic partnerships mostly. So I would say those are sort of the core things that I would tell uh, future leaders in this space um, to look out for. Ama, I I want to thank you for sharing your journey with us, your passion for education and ways we can put public service on the radar for the next generation. Thank you. Stay tuned for our next episode in this special series of the Management Matters podcast, celebrating public service recognition week.